The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime! Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of choice going, folks. We've got a longtime friend returning tonight to talk about JFK and his work with some serious, serious investigators and authors. For the past two and a half years, Alan Dale's been serving as a research assistant to guess who? None other than Dr. John M. Newman. Yeah. Has he got some stuff for us tonight, Alan does. He has co-hosted JFK Facts Online with renowned investigative journalist and author Jefferson Morley. And folks, fans of the show will know that in the www.nightfrightshow.com archives, you'll find Jeff's show there with me as well. He is also a contributing editor and director of the Assassination Archives and Research Center, and he is host of an online interview program which can be found at jfkconversations.com and of course all those links folks will be at a focal point on the www.nightfrightshow.com website. It is my great pleasure to welcome back to the show the one, the only, Alan Dale. (laughs) (laughs) Who's my personal best buddy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Thanks for showing up and being a nice guy. That's very nice of you. Happy to be with you. Shall we um, Shall we start off with some of the work you've been doing with Dr. John Newman? I mean, this is incredible. How did this come about that you connected with him and you become his main research assistant? Well, I'm a... Uh, I, uh, the, if there's a short version, uh, and I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a main anything. I'm, uh, I do have the privilege of working very closely with him for a couple of years now on materials that are relevant to his work. And he's uh, engaged in very ambitious and very difficult uh, work at this point in his life. Um, he was deeply invested in in being an historian and an investigator um, really for the last 25 years, but at some point rather um, uh, at some point within 
the last uh, 12 years or so, he decided to get out of the game, and that didn't last very long. He made a consequential decision to get back in the game, and it was, uh, you know, either stay out or be all in, and he made, really to our ultimate benefit, he made a very difficult decision and chose to be all in. Uh, I met him 25 years ago and spent some uh, what was for me some incredibly valuable important time with him while he was uh, promoting the work uh, that brought him to international attention and that was uh, JFK in Vietnam. Dr. Newman at the time was uh, an active duty uh, major, an army intelligence officer what is referred to uh, his actual technical title, I believe, was a strategic intelligence cryptologic analyst for the United States Army Intelligence. And that position led to his introduction to the head of Army Intelligence, General William Odom, who was who accepted an appointment to the National Security Agency and chose of all the people that he could have drawn into his immediate circle because obviously General Odom had, uh, you know, he had access to everybody in the service. He could have chosen whomever he wanted. He chose Dr. Newman to be his executive military assistant for the next two years during Dr. Uh, General Odom's, uh, he's also a PhD, internationally renowned academic and an extraordinary scholar in his own right, uh, General Odom chose to have Dr. Newman serve as his executive military assistant during his period as the director of the National Security Agency. So he's in very, this is a really unusual, these are very unusual qualifications for any human being, and for him to have become through a series of extremely improbable and serendipitous uh, crossroads, proverbial forks in the road, a series of them, and with the influence of his mentors, uh, which includes General Odom and Dr. Richard Thornton, who was his primary uh, professor uh, in in his college career, um, Dr. Newman has really kind of paved a road that and extended a road that was introduced to all of us by Professor Peter Dale Scott. So I honestly, as I've said to you probably more than twice, uh, I personally see, uh, I'm certainly not alone, Dr. Newman is the first one to acknowledge it, that, doc, that Professor Scott really is a person whose work was extremely influential in terms of helping to illuminate direction. Uh, for people like Dr. John Newman uh, and Bill Simpich and Jeff Morley and innumerable important and disciplined and extremely serious uh, and extremely cautious scholars. Renowned are, Canadian, by the way. Who who's that? Uh, Brent, I, I'm sorry, I missed. Do you have a you have a comment? I don't know to whom you're referring. Peter Dale Scott Harold's from the same city that I do in Canada. Always oh, that's he oh, Montreal. Right. Montreal. I have no idea. This is the first I've ever heard of this. <laughs> Alan oh, wait, and I have this waiting thing where I bug him. He's spot. in DC, right? And I'm in Canada and I always bug him. I always tell him I'm gonna send him a hockey stick or a hockey puck, you know, things like that. And Alan refuses to come to Canada because he has an aversion to hockey, so what can I tell you? But I'll go to yeah. DC. 
because I don't uh, have an aversion. I'm sure to you can rightfully be proud of the fact that among many other notable Canadians, such as the great Oscar Peterson, uh, Diana Krall, and don't forget Lorne Green of Bonanza, and William Shatner, for that matter, uh, Professor Scott is indeed a native of Canada, but I, I'm quick to point out that he left Canada and went to Poland, and then he went to California, where he served, had a most distinguished career, and is Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley, which was ground zero during the countercultural sure movement was. of the 60s. Still, still Canadian, though. Anyways, okay, well, let's talk oh. about Dr. John Newman's you know, what's it like working with a, with a highly, you know, you're, you're right there on the cutting edge of all this new research that's coming out. Let me just name some of the books he's written. JFK in Vietnam, Deception, Intrigue, and the Struggle for Power. Now listen to what Arthur Schlesinger Jr. said about this book. A former special assistant to Kennedy called it the most solid contribution yet to speculation regarding the course of American history had the president not been assassinated isn't that incredible what a comment yeah that's unbelievable now he's also written oswald and the cia the documented truth about the unknown relationship between the u.s government and the alleged killer of jfk quest for the kingdom this is kind of a he different uh, um different uh, perspective for him a different uh what's the word i'm looking for different Field. journey for him thank you quest for the kingdom the secret teachings of jesus in the light of yogic yogic mysticism and of course where angels tread lightly the assassination of president kennedy volume one what's the title of volume two alan uh, countdown to Darkness. Uh, we we've had an extraordinary period of productivity. Uh, Dr. Newman worked very hard to update uh, his volume one, um, Where Angels Tread Lightly, so that as of late January of this year, 2017, he published an updated version of uh, Where Angels Tread Lightly. He published volume two in his continuing series on the assassination which is called countdown to darkness the assassination of president kennedy volume two and uh he did the the herculean um project of updating and expanding uh this most consequential book from 1992 that that really set his course in in motion and that is uh, jfk in vietnam second edition uh, you quoted arthur schlesinger jr uh, there was also a, a quote from um from uh William Colby, Bill Colby, he was uh, director of Consequence following Richard Helms, uh, DCI, Director of Central Intelligence. And this was really one of the things that got a lot of people's attention uh, back when the book was making waves. The, the, the book had really kind of an extraordinary impact in part because of the, the careful and extraordinary depth of knowledge and and the scholarship of its author, uh, Major John Newman. And so William Colby, former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, person responsible for the release of what they refer to as the family jewels, the person who fired James Angleton, 
a uh, person who was very deeply engaged in Southeast Asia uh, while the Kennedy administration was dealing with the subject of Vietnam. Uh, William Colby said this about JFK in Vietnam, a brilliant, meticulously researched and fascinating account of the decision making which led to America's long agony in Vietnam. Mr. Newman has added to our history and hopefully our modesty. As we approach the decisions of the future, William E. Colby, former director of Central Intelligence Agency. Now, you know, the, the fact that Colby and uh, Professor Schlesinger both wanted to go on record to draw attention to this man's work at that point in uh, late 1992, that's the kind of um, attention, you know, po positive review from uh, Kirkus. Uh, front page New York Times book review, um, positive review uh, there, innumerable other accolades by very, very serious people, had also an awful lot of people who thought that they were knowledgeable, who were uh, distressed to have to confront uh, better scholarship and deeper research uh, than that for which they had been responsible. So there were a lot of, uh, you know, people, I wrote a review about it on Amazon. And um, I said, basically, I said, the, the, if I may quote myself, because, uh, you know, what the hell, I said, the, the story of the story is critical. And this is relevant to the fact that the book Brent was pulled after five months, and it no longer became available. And I know you've discovered this because you and I have talked about this privately. This is a book that made front page news all over the country and was endorsed by people of the stature of Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and William Colby and the publisher pulled it. And so, so my review is as follows. I said, the story of the story is critical. The publication of JFK in Vietnam in 1992 did more than create controversy and ignite a media firestorm. Its basic thesis that President Kennedy was opposed to sending U.S. combat, combat forces to Vietnam and would have averted the terrible war and its consequences was denounced by some and applauded by others. The book was given sufficient thoughtful attention by a few which would change the nature and scope of the argument over what would he have done if he had lived. While being attacked and defended during the initial period following publication, it was singled out and praised by former DCI William Colby and former Special Assistant to President Kennedy Arthur Schlesinger Jr., adding credibility to the idea that up until that time, the story had never been presented with such detail, authority, or documentation. In 1992, JFK in Vietnam received high praise from Publishers Weekly and Kirkus Reviews. It was featured and recommended on the front page of the New York Times Book Review. The book garnered nationwide attention for a time. That time was cut short by the demonstrable suppression of the book by its publisher, Warner Books. After first surviving a very serious threat of intervention to block publication by a federal agency, within five months, JFK in Vietnam was pulled from the shelves, found to be unavailable for purchase anywhere, and left its author unable to communicate with the publisher's representatives. They stopped returning his calls. Not since the Pentagon Papers has there been such an attempt to deny the American public access to a book about Vietnam. 
without a serendipitous encounter between the author and a distinguished member of a distinguished American family, the book of the the story of the book itself might well have ended as abruptly as it began. It is our very good fortune that the story did not end there. The publisher returned the legal rights of the book to its author, and 25 years later, we have JFK in Vietnam, second edition. And then I continued, but basically that tells the story that um, people who were introduced to the book during that first period uh, immediately following publication and who saw the kind of press that it brought in innumerable articles in the Washington Post and all over the place about this this extraordinary young scholar who was an active duty army intelligence officer. This got the attention of some major figures. And in spite of that, or perhaps because, the book got pulled. So the story of the story has only now been been published in the second edition. And it's something that I consider to be very important. Are you up against the is Dr. Newman up against the same type of roadblocks with the second edition that he was with the no. first? No, he 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 was going a formal route through a major publisher, uh, Time Life and Warner Books. That was a big deal, and uh, without going into a lot of detail about other things, uh, which might be relevant to the story that ultimately Dr. Newman would have to choose to either speak about or not. Uh, really, if you want to know about it, it's it, the, the part that's relevant to his personal experience uh, and how odd the story becomes, um, you know, immediately after all of this positive press. Um, is quite a story unto itself. And uh, and the other thing, of course, relevant to JFK in Vietnam is the book was published um, and and prior to publication had become introduced, was introduced to former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, and that began an extraordinary uh, personal experience for each of them uh, because the book brought the two of them together, and it became, as I always say, it was an, a very consequential period um, for each of them. And so uh, so has, JFK in Vietnam was important then. It's every bit as important now. Has he ever been able to ascertain why they pulled it? Was there a specific reason? Was there somebody behind it? Uh, there, there, there are lots so of ways in the book that it just had to be suppressed. Well, but obviously I, ruffled feathers. Yeah, I think that's the way to go in, in a confined space in terms of trying to address, you know, your question. It's a good question. It's a very legitimate question. And people who are students of America during the Cold War, of America pre and post Water, Watergate, will arrive at their own conclusions depending upon the extent to which you know they choose to invest the necessary time in very you know very difficult areas um but i think you know the the the, the most the best thing that a, an an historian can do is to is to go out on a limb and then make a case, which is then submitted for, you know, the proverbial peer review that publication represents. Make a case for 
something that either overturns an orthodoxy or introduces new facts or does both, JFK in Vietnam did both of those things. It overturned the orthodoxy that our nation tells itself and teaches its children that President Kennedy's assassination did not disrupt the continuity of his foreign policy, especially with regard to Vietnam, and that Lyndon Johnson basically just picked up where uh, JFK left off. Turns out that's false, and JFK in Vietnam presents us with the necessity of com confronting the proof that is that is a part of uh, this story. What was behind the Vietnam War, according to the book? <laughs> uh, look, we would seconds. be here. No, no I don't. I, yeah, right. <laughs> See, you know, you're funny. Uh, uh, I, I would say that. Well, I just what, I, I at, was there, what that, were the machinations? Is there, uh, a, you know, very common. I blame um, Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> no, I really, Thomas Jefferson is where you have to go if you want to find somebody <laughs> who sends American people out to do military <laughs> things far away. Uh, talk to General G Charles de Gaulle and then talk to Charles General Giop of the North Vietnam or Army or read everything <laughs> that. That Ho Chi Minh wrote. Okay. Um, was there, but it, but keeping it going, was there a military industrial complex? Was there this deep state, state that every, that is so common now for everybody to say? Was there fake news going on? I mean, we hear this what all I'm, the time today. I hear what you're saying, and here's the way I'm going to address this because, you know, I'm far away and there, you can't throw anything at me. Uh, oh, you haven't seen my slap shot, buddy. <laughs> here's what I want to say about it. I had a conversation with my most um, valued uh, friend, uh, Professor Peter Dale Scott, and he smiles quietly while people talk about how horrible the Donald Trump era is in the United States of America right now. Because suddenly a lot of people have have determined that something's wrong. Mm. <laughs> and the reason that Professor Scott, you know, can smile quietly to himself is that uh, things being, you know, wrong did not start with the ascension to the presidency of Donald W. Trump or whatever his middle name is. Uh, I think that the the answers to your questions it's are it's very, I think W was the other Republican. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm probably aware of that. That, that may have been Sorry a, to interrupt you. not a great attempt at humor. Um, so, you know, I mean, the, the, there are temporary residents of the White House. But the <laughs> what Professor Scott, you know, would refer to as the deep state, probably, and the what how he differentiates between parapolitics and deep politics and all of the story of trying to come up with terminology that is um, appropriate for some mechanism by which uh, the constitutional system of governance has been transcended but is included within something else. So something else at work did not start either when Eisen, when President Eisenhower on January 17th of 1961 referred to the unwarranted influence either sought or unsought of the military-industrial-congressional complex, 
Uh, it didn't start when President Kennedy was murdered in broad daylight two years, 10 months, and two days into his administration. And it did not start with people being suspicious that maybe Hillary Clinton was not a, a good choice if we were looking to address whatever seems to be going terribly wrong. So um, so the, the, the basic question that you're asking is an important question, and it, it really is simply an examination of the nature of power as it was being exerted through military and covert mechanisms during the period of the Cold War. So we're really focusing with Dr. Newman's work on the decisions, the years leading up to JFK and throughout his period in office and in the immediate aftermath of his assassination. So, you know, I, I would say that if a person who examines all of this work deeply, and I'm uh, very much a proponent that people might choose to invest the necessary time, the necessary money, and the necessary effort to absorb what Dr. Newman is presenting to us, uh, you will be rewarded by having a much deeper and much better understanding of the context and the the composition of the fabric of the national security establishment because politicians, uh, by and large, are just sort of temporary players on a stage where the theater itself is built is the structure within which action is initiated and plans are acted upon, um, which may not be legal <laughs> and which may be counterintuitive. Uh, things, the strange bedfellows that bring together the mafia and organized crime for the purpose of assassinating foreign head of state. These are not things for which we are well equipped. It, certainly the generation, the World War II generation, people who thought in terms of, you know, knowing who the good guys are and who the bad guys are and, you know, having... Uh, maybe a, 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 a strong sense of patriotic responsibility because we knew that we were the good guys and that once you get into the complexities behind the scenes, National Security Council, special group, special group augmented, and the details and records, uh, you come to a point where you are learning gradually why President Eisenhower this is a question I hardly have ever heard anybody ask. People frequently refer to that speech, the military-industrial complex speech, January 17th, 1961, three days before JFK is inaugurated, right? Why did, did Dwight Eisenhower, who'd been the supreme commander of Allied forces for the last two years of the war, two-term president, why was he discussing that? Why did he choose that final occasion to address the citizens of the United States? Why did he want to emphasize this particular thing? Well, if you want to know, uh, I can recommend uh, the work of Dr. Newman on this important subject, because we're a long way in, the, in terms of uh, approaching the investigation of President Kennedy's assassination. Uh, we are a long way, many a couple of years and many, many miles from Dealey Plaza. So, you know, to do a proper investigation, it requires a lot of background. 
and uh, a very close analysis of what happened leading up to Dallas. Is JFK and Vietnam in the book, does he address the fact that perhaps Vietnam was part of the reason that JFK was assassinated? I don't think he was assassinated. We've talked about this for just one single reason. I think there was multiple reasons behind it. Does he address that in the book? Uh, JFK in Vietnam uh, is not designed uh, very deliberately. It's not, it doesn't take it upon itself to address the subject of President Kennedy's assassination. It does, however, provide everybody who's interested in the subject of President Kennedy's assassination with the, the most depth and the greatest detail ever published in this country on the subject of the Shakespearean or Machiavellian complexities at work within a divided administration where the president of the United States, who is the chief executive, who is authorized by, by the Constitution to be the responsible party, has some uh, difficulties, let's say, trying to, uh, trying to take control of his, uh, the, the things that are, for which he is responsible and that he's supposed to be able to influence. So I'll go back just just because I think it's relevant because, you know, I, I've already written it. I'll quote this uh, review that I wrote for of JFK in Vietnam. I said, JFK in Vietnam, second edition, should be publicized and promoted so that every student, every teacher, every citizen who volunteers for military service and every aspiring politician will know the many false calculations, mistakes, manipulations, deceptions, and intrigue which led to the Vietnam War. This essential work examines in detail the Shakespearean machinations of deception and counter-deception that took place in the hidden maneuverings of a president who was determined to avoid being trapped and determined to never again repeat the, the mistakes of the Bay of Pigs. Dr. Newman documents President Kennedy's navigation of a dangerous course through Cold War hotspots and a very divided administration. What eventually emerges is an astonishingly dishonorable deception, a deliberate attempt to manipulate the President of the United States to authorize a war policy to which he was fundamentally opposed. This is more than JFK and Vietnam. It is JFK and Laos, JFK and the Pentagon, JFK and the CIA. JFK and the national security establishment as it evolved during the years preceding his election. The president recognized and responded to a clever adversary during the two years, ten months, and two days of his administration, which acted within 48 hours of his violent death in Dallas to reverse his policy on Vietnam and throw America headlong into the tragic war that ensued Five stars, highest recommendation. That's the conclusion of my review of JFK and Vietnam, second edition. Why would they do that, Alan? Just from your perspective, your opinion, why would they go back on JFK's policy of pulling all those, if you will, um, contributors, not contributors, trainers out of Vietnam and, and go back on that policy and, and all of a sudden they're going to go full force? Is that Johnson's own doing? Or was there something actually controlling Johnson as well at that point? 
were there strings uh, attached to Johnson pulling him in that direction? Of, of course, uh, you know, we live in what is described to us as a democratic republic, and it's not a monarchy. So anyone who would suggest that there are no forces being exerted on Lyndon Johnson relevant to the same issues that confronted and challenged President Kennedy uh, would kind of, you know, not be making, I think, a legitimate case. But the issues about personalities and, you know, uh, corruption, our friend Professor Joan Mellon has written a book that I recommend called uh, Faustian Bargains about LBJ, and she dispels some urban legends, which I think are, it's always a good idea to, to dispel mythologies. Can uh, you uh, talk about the Mac Wallace uh, fingerprint that she dispelled? I, I'm going to let her talk about that because I, I, I'm only going to go as far as say that I recommend the book. I have read the book and I've spoken with her extensively about it. Um, but but really, the the, mesh, the minutia of something like the technicalities about, hey, it turns out there is no match to be made with that, uh, cl that claim of identifying uh, the fingerprint. Yeah, um, uh, that's that's enough for me be because I'm always I'm less interested in the forensic stuff and in who was standing next to whom in Dealey Plaza based upon fuzzy photographs and stuff like that than I am about the kind of big picture questions that you're asking and and I would say that in all honesty this is a work in progress for any thoughtful person uh, it raises very serious questions about about where we live and how power is exercised during this period. Uh, it didn't start with Donald Trump, so there are really important questions to be addressed about how did we get to Donald Trump? You know, you and I speak privately about how, um, you know, apart from the problems that I personally would uh, have with the perpetuation of the proverbial status quo with someone like uh, Hillary Clinton without regard to the fact that she might be much preferable with regard to social issues and, and uh, minority issues and things like that. In terms of her, um, you know, in terms of her status... Well, no, I was going to say, oh, well, I'm not aware of any, but in, in whatever you want to say about her, Robert bang whatever you want to say about her um, career, I think it is indisputable that somehow, some way, she became a candidate of choice by elements of the national security establishment, which crossed party lines prior to the election. Uh, to come together and to say, hey, we think this guy is a boob, and whatever you do, don't vote for him. So make sure you vote for her. In response to which, enough people voted for him, uh, maybe not a majority, but enough that she didn't have a cakewalk, and she lost that election, and now Donald Trump is here. So it is something different than whatever was intended with regard to why so many recognizable figures associated with the national security establishment uh, wanted us and declared to us that we, it was in our best interest, it was in everybody's best interest to vote for her. My perception of it, and it's only my opinion, is that she's a pro-war candidate. She is gung-ho about killing people outside of the United States. 
And, um, you know, I had the impression that maybe Donald Trump represented a, uh, a real aberration from the usual business as usual. So while I did not vote for him, I did make Professor Scott laugh on the telephone by saying to him that I voted to make America great again. I wrote in JFK. I think that's perfect, actually. So tell me, is Donald Trump going against the grain right now? Is he in jeopardy of being manipulated by the deep state in the same sense that JFK oh, was? Listen, man, I mean, no, not in the same sense that, well... Uh, I'll tell you why, I'll tell you why, okay? And I noticed yeah. this. Now, you know, okay. I... I I don't like Hillary. I don't like Donald Trump. Everybody knows that, okay? That's too bad because those were our choices. (laughs) Well, not if you move to Canada, then you could have Justin Trudeau, and apparently all the girls like him. So all I have to say, I'm making weight, folks, okay? So I know I'm going to get hell from one side, and I'm going to get hell from the other side. I'm after the truth. But I'll tell you this. Donald Trump wanted to bring a peace of some kind, a reconciliation with Russia, Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I've noticed that he's put $55 billion, billion dollars increase into the military. Absolutely. And I'm wondering, is that his choice or is he being manipulated to it? And now there's boots on the ground in Syria. I worry that here we go again. And all of a sudden, well, he's $55 I, I don't billion. Think, bucks. I, I don't think there's any such thing as here we go again. If If here we go again is... A, a description of something that is uh, that isn't constant. So the constant expansion of the national security state as increasing, you know, military action and uh, expanding upon the military presence, uh, the United States military presence around the world in eighty different countries. Uh, how many 800 military bases? There's a new, recent book I may have described to you uh, by a guy named David Vine, V-I-N-E, called Base Nation, B-A-S-E Nation. I recommend it. Um, you know, this this uh, Orwellian um, counter speech, this uh, thing where everything pertaining to America's military presence around the world is supposed to be about Here's the word, defense. I remember. I think the president of there Ecuador of places, you know. was it Ecuador? It may have been Guatemala. I think it was Ecuador. He was uh, in a position to either uh, sign an agreement so that the United States could maintain a military base there or not. And the only press report that I've read about it, and I'm not up to date about it. This was sometime recently, but I'm not certain how it's been resolved. He made a joke, and he said, yes, he would allow the United States to maintain a military base in his country as long as the United States would allow him to put a base in Miami. And I thought, well, there, <laughs> that's the kind of guy I, kinda, I could get along with him, probably. Uh, but, you know, we've gone pretty far astray off of the work of Dr. Newman. The, the thing that I want to emphasize with Dr. Newman's work is that this is a real, total immersion in in as a history lesson if you're interested in president kennedy's death then you 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 really should i'm sorry to use this term but but i i i'm shrugging because i really mean it you should learn something about his life and there's a lot of solid ground to represent jfk 
truthfully, as someone who was an opponent of imperialism, whether it was European, whether it was the French in Indochina or the Belgians in the Congo or all kinds of other everything everywhere. Uh, he spoke uh, out against American policy in Vietnam as early as 1954. Uh, on the, he gave an extraordinary speech about the French occupation of Algeria in 1957. He didn't become a different guy who all of a sudden just wanted to put American military bases all over the world and to exploit, you know, indigenous peoples, indigenous resources. If you look for what I'm telling you, you'll find it. He was a proponent of peace and an advocate of the, the cautious and diplomatic disassembly of the traditional imperialisms of the 19th and 20th century. It was taught. It was, it was and taught. I think you touched on that before. I think far too often... In, when we discuss JFK, automatically we're gravitating towards the assassination and fuzzy pictures and who's this and who's that. And we're losing right. the bigger picture because yeah. it was a complete administration. He was involved in foreign policy, domestic policy, civil rights, etc., etc. We have to look at the big picture in order to find out why. And once mm -hmm. we find out the why, maybe we can find out the who. I yeah. think we've already established beyond reasonable doubt that there was indeed more than one shooter in Dealey Plaza that day. I mean, Sherry Feaster's work alone just blows that right out of the water with uh, the fact that she's a crime scene investigator, folks. You will find her show and do get her book uh, in the www.nightfrightshow.com uh, archives. Crime scene investigator examined, examined the Zapruder film, found a frontal shot right away from the South Knoll, right away, two shooters, one behind, one in front, probably more. But there we have scientific proof now. So we've established that. But why was he killed? That's still the most important question. Now, that brings me back to a question that um, Man X asked. That was the most important question in the JFK movie, by that masterpiece by Oliver Stone. Now, Dr. Newman was also instrumental in adding information to that and reading scenes. Can you talk about his contribution to this film, JFK? Uh, I'm glad you asked about that, Brent, because this is something that I, I think is... Yeah, um, I, I do this for a living. That's You see the long way around to get to that? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a fluke, but the point it is... It was, to be honest. Yeah, the point I would make is that um, that movie, JFK, uh, which I think should properly be referred to as a masterpiece, it's uh, it's really... A uh, superbly crafted film in every conceivable category, including the score by John Williams and the acting by people who allowed uh, their participation without their usual, uh, re you know, requisite compensation that they weren't, they didn't expect. They they agreed to do it for, uh, in certain cases, for no money. But that's not that's not what I'm getting around to. Uh, it's a successful film. It's not a documentary, but as a fictitious, you know, as a fictional construct, which includes some elements that have that have some measure of documentation. It is a masterpiece, and it's the only film of which I'm aware that both Gene Siskel and Robert e Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, both agreed which you know, they were renowned for not agreeing on a hell of a lot 
they thought it deserved to be best picture of the year in in that year when it when it after it premiered. Uh, Dr. Newman's role as a technical advisor on the Vietnam question is something that I think played a significant role in the success of the film. And and without the film being as successful as it was, there would have been no public outrage. There would have been no introduction and signing into law of the 1992 President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act, and there would have been no Assassination Records Review Board, which is to date the last time the government of the United States has made any effort to examine the documentation that uh, government uh, agencies have maintained pertaining to assassination-related materials, which, in a very timely sort of way, uh, with regard to your question, it's timely because we are finally in the year 2017. October 26th of this year represents the conclusion of the period that was stipulated in the 1992 Records Collection Act. And the work of the ARRB, which went through an enormous quantity of materials, including the Warren Commission materials, the Church Committee, the Pike Committee, the Edwards Committee, the the Rockefeller Commission, and the House Select Committee on Assassinations. ARRB went through everything. It also required the Central Intelligence Agency, the FBI, and the Secret Service, and other places inside the government to comply by providing either uh, an explanation as to why certain materials should not be released in part or in full, or uh, acknowledge that certain things could be released, which resulted in a gigantic quantity of material being dropped on into the National Archives, which is how Dr. Newman followed up JFK in Vietnam three years later with a book that absolutely stunned people who thought that they were knowledgeable about the story of Lee Oswald and the story of, of the investi uh, government's investigation into the assassination, a book called Oswald and the CIA. So everything is connected. You know, everything is connected. I always say just we've got to back up. Let's back up. A lot of uh, work on the assassination starts at 1230, November 22nd, 1963. And that's not the way Dr. Newman is approaching any of this. This is, uh, yeah, this is um, a major undertaking. And what it represents is uh, kind of unprecedented. It represents a multi-dimensional, uh, you know, approach uh, across the chronology of many years and the geography of many places. I and just how... want to back up for a second myself. Okay. What scenes did he contribute to in JFK? And then we can move on from that. Uh, he rewrote scenes that, that featured uh, Donald Sutherland. And he concentrated pretty exclusively on issues relevant to Vietnam. His agreement with Oliver Stone, when Oliver Stone uh, approached him, initiated the contact, and made him a financial offer to participate. Uh, it, cul it culminated with, uh, well, let, let's just say that it included uh, nine or possibly ten scenes that Dr. Newman rewrote based upon his understanding and what he could prove with regard to JFK and the conflict that he had with the national security establishment uh, during his period of influence, 
over the issue of America and Vietnam. And so he, he, the agreement that Dr. Newman specified was he was not going to express, uh, he was not going to address things specifically about President Kennedy's assassination, because at the time, Dr. Newman felt that was not something that he was qualified to do. And this guy's a real scholar. He's not trying to float his own boat or toot his own horn. If he doesn't know something, he'll say this is something that requires, you know, uh, uh, more time. Um, so he did not participate in things relevant to issues about the shooting and stuff like that. But he did. He was accepted as an authoritative um, resource by Oliver Stone to the benefit of the final product, which really impacted American popular culture and made the, the extraordinary leap from pop culture into law with the 1992 President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act, which expires on the 26th of October of this year, this year. and barring, barring yeah. an intervention by the President mm -hmm. of the United States, who could respond to any kind of petition from a federal agency. Oh, no. And there are a couple of three-letter agencies to which I would refer. Mm. Um, they can petition the president and say, here's some stuff that should not be released for issues of, because of issues of national security. And, uh, and that's to, what it is. And I was going to say, to me, that Man X scene in JFK, the movie JFK, that yeah. is the most important scene of the whole movie because that asks and begs the question, why was he killed? Uh, played incredibly by Donald Sutherland, who's a Canadian, by the way. I would say played credibly, but, but you know, the fact that you keep insisting that only good, awesome people are from Canada, I would have to remind you of all kinds of people that I can rattle off who not so hot. But that's but you know the same is true of every country on earth with the exception of Tibet. <laughs> I'm having some fun with Alan again tonight, <laughs> folks. <laughs> this is the way we talk. We banter back and forth. We go like this. Oh, all is that time. what it is? Thanks for explaining that's what that. Because I'm sure nobody would notice. Um, there, anyway, another no guy I know, Alan, like you, um, and thank God for that. All that yeah. to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's got their finger on the pulse of the cutting edge, the very, very, very cutting edge of today's deep, profound um, research in the JFK assassination. And that's because you're connected with all these great researchers, Dr. John Newman, Jeff Morley, uh, Malcolm Blunt, who I was hoping to get to tonight, and uh, we never got around to it. Um, We've got a few minutes left. Do you want to jump into Mountain Yeah, uh, Mountain I do. Yeah. Uh, first, I would say that the privileges that I enjoy uh, with regard to my personal and professional relationships with some really extraordinary researchers who, in so many cases, I've found are really extraordinary people. All of this is something that has emerged in my life as the result of the influence of the woman that about whom you just referred uh, or to whom you just referred, Sherry Feaster. Sherry is a person of consequence, uh, not only in terms of the work that is uh, documented in her book, uh, Enemy of the Truth, Myths, Forensics, and the Kennedy Assassination, uh, where she really 
apply to, she wasn't dependent exclusively. I want to make an important correction. She was not dependent exclusively upon analyzing the Zapruder film. She's a career forensic um, crime scene reconstruction expert with an area of particular expertise in what's called blood spatter analysis. And uh, what she has presented, uh, defining the trajectory cone, which is a term with which I was completely unfamiliar, that redefined in a revolutionary way for me and for quite a lot of other people, including some major people behind the scenes. She redefined what the concept of front means. Because if President Kennedy's head was turned 25 and a half degrees to the left of center, 25 and a half degrees to the left of the center of the automobile at frame 312 in the Zapruder sequence, that changes what the word front means. Because front isn't the proverbial north knoll. Front is across the st those three streets, somewhere over there. Uh, where she has uh, she has made an argument um, with I think substantial documentation that a sing at least a single shot was fired which um, traversed uh, the right hemisphere of President Kennedy's head doing a lot of damage but did not enter into the left hemisphere of his head and with a protractor and uh, a, you know and a human skull. I think you can see a, a, a sixth grader with a protractor can see the problem of a shot from the proverbial grassy knoll if uh, all of what we just referred to is true. So without worrying too much about the details, I'm more interested in why it happened uh, than how it happened. I'm more interested in who was responsible and how they got away with it. And with that you know, as my objective to have the privilege of knowing and working with people like Dr. Newman and Jeff Morley and Bill Simpich and my great dear friend, uh, the extraordinary Malcolm Blunt, who who may be, well, he is unquestionably one of a small number of the world's leading authorities on the infrastructure of the agency and the internal systems and organization, which are so complicated and so different than what you would think about a federal bureaucracy, but are so essential. It's so essential for this reason. Got to start to wrap up. We've only got like yeah, 12 seconds left. I got it. You've so. got to know what something looks like when it's running the way it's supposed to, to recognize when there's something abnormal. And that's where Malcolm Blood has come in. He's the subject of an interview on my site right now, jfkconversations.com. There you have it, folks. Alan Dale tonight. And uh, like I said, he's the only guy I know with his pulse on the leading edge research in the JFK community. There's some music got to run. Thanks so much, Alan, for coming in as a super. Thank you. Always. And uh, he'll be back, folks, just like Arnold Schwarzenegger says. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm Brent. <laughs> well, they're twins. You know, you've seen the movie Twins. There's, you know, you can pick uh -huh. which one. Alan plays the Schwarzenegger or the DeVito character. Anyway. Thanks a lot. That's okay. Thank you very much, Alan. Seriously. See you. Okay. Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you all next time.
Inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza. First-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com. 